From the Department of Theater and Film at the University of Mississippi, this is Stage and Screen. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Stage and Screen. I'm your host, Katherine Stewart, and my guest today is Lauren Bone Noble. Lauren is an assistant professor of Movement for the Actor, and she joined our department in the fall of 2020. Since then, she has seen our students through the creation of an entirely new work of theater and also seen the debut of a work that she had been developing previously. We'll talk about those things and many others, including the fact that when she and her family moved here from upstate New York, they did not come alone. And that's a little teaser. You're going to have to keep listening to figure out what that means. So stay tuned. talked about earlier, um, maybe just to get us started, you could tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, your training, you know, just uh, what you've done up until this point. Sure. My pleasure. Where to start? Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Well, um, I went to undergraduate school at the University of Memphis one million years ago when it was still when it was still Memphis State. Um, and I, I, I loved college. I just did. It was like my people. I loved the theater. I loved being a BFA student and just doing this thing and not having to do all the other things that I didn't like. <laughs> sure. <laughs> right? I mean, I, I think my mother tells me that I announced at some point that I would not be going to college. And then later when I found out that you could go to college for acting, I was very surprised. I didn't know that one could do such a thing. And then I declared that I would in fact be going to college if I could study acting. And I think they, both of my parents breathed a sigh of relief and, and off I went and I loved it. I just adored it. It's a great program, small enough to feel like family, but big enough to, make cool things, you know, have mm-hmm. some support mm-hmm. cool things. And yeah, that was a great experience. Um, and then, and then I did not know what to do with myself at all upon graduation from college. I did not know how to be an adult. I did not know how to cook food, wash my clothes. I didn't know anything. I was such an infant. I moved to Chicago and I was miserable, miserable. So that's a big city to be a noob in. Yeah, I was a total newbie, and I never lived in the north before. And I moved there in like October, and then there was winter. Yeah, I was so sad. I mean, Catherine, I would, yeah, I'd never taken public transportation before, so I'm trying to get to my little, you know, living jobs to support myself on on the L and getting completely covered in snow and dirt and wet and having to redress myself on arriving. It was just, I was a sad little thing. So I left Chicago with my tail between my legs. I did not do well there. But uh, the smart thing I did is I went back to Memphis where people loved me and where I was familiar with things. And I decided to go to grad. I want to go to grad school. And then, then I went to grad school. And that was great too, although hard, but great. So then I did that. I did grad school for three years at the National Conservatory in um, in National Theater Conservatory in Denver, which I love. Denver is a great town. 
three years of training, and then I moved directly to New York City. Wow. And did you have a particular goal or focus in mind when you set out to the city? Oh, I just think I wanted to, I've always just wanted to be an actor. Like yeah. there was, whatever, just give it to me. I'll do it. I'll do it. I, I mean, I I did Renaissance festivals. I did shows in a pit of mud. I, I did the, you know, I put on the animal suits and walked around the mall at holiday times. I don't care. Give it to me. I'll do it. Commercials, music videos, television, theater, it didn't matter. I'll do high style, I'll do melodrama, it doesn't matter. I just wanted to be acting, right? But I do particularly love physical theater a whole yeah. lot. And that I think I got a little bit, I don't wanna say off track in grad school. The grad school I went to was great. And I learned a lot about acting and I did study physical theater there, but the acting is more of a classical conservatory style acting. Mm -hmm. And it's more about doing natural realism than, than special skill sets and clowning or anything like that. That, that I had to study on my own after I went to grad school, but um, I just wanted to be an actor. I moved to New York city fully intending to immediately begin working. I had no intention that I was going to, I have no backup plan, nothing. I'm going to New York. I'm going to be an actor, period. Wow. So That boldness though served you, right? I mean, you have in your, in your resume, like you've been in a lot of TV shows and I've done some stuff. I mean, yeah, I, I, I felt like when I left New York city, um, I got married and my, my spouse did not want to live in the city and I, he was working north of the city and I was like, well, I can live up there and commute in. And, um, and then we got married and then we had children and I just couldn't do that commute anymore or live that lifestyle anymore of a, of an actor and be the kind of parent I wanted to be, which was present. And so I decided to take a break, but yes, my, my boldness, I think, I won't say fearlessness because I was terrified, but <laughs> I was like, I'm doing it anyway. I just wanted to so badly. And all the steps I took to get there helped me do that. Grad school was a big step in the direction of being brave uh, because I, I was around other actors who were doing it. They were living that life. It didn't seem like a crazy thing. It was just, this is how it's done. So moving to New York was a, a good next step for me. And yeah, yeah, I, I think when I left New York, I, I think what I was going to say was that I felt like I had accomplished what I'd set out to do, which was be a working actor. And I was. Um, and, and I kept on doing it for a little while. And then, like I said, I, I thought I just can't keep leaving my kids to go on auditions or go away and do gigs. And I come back and I'm exhausted and my husband's exhausted and the kids are like, mommy, you know, so I took a break and I started teaching and that's how I came to academic theater through the through the side door <laughs> you also in the course of of all that um came to physical theater and movement as as kind of what you wanted to focus on right yes yes well when i was in undergraduate school at 
Memphis State, there was an amazing physical theater program there uh, that was really a, a, a kind of a one woman show uh, with a professor named Susan Kritzberg. And she'd studied with Etienne de Creux in France. And I just, she, she really changed my life. Like I had never been exposed to that kind of work before. I didn't know what that was. And it was so detailed and so embodied. And I did like a independent study with her where I got to make my own clown show. And, and then I did Renaissance festivals for years where it was, that's all, that's just clown work. It's just clowning and improving for 10 hours a day, you know? And I loved, I loved that. And that's where I started like meeting more of that kind of vaudeville folk, you know, doing that kind of, those kinds of shows uh, and just widen my sphere of influence. And then in grad school, I studied with a guy named Charlie Oates and he's very uh, Lecoq based clowning. And, and I just started studying with more people in, in physical theater. I just always loved it, but I, I kind of, again, grad school, Re, kind of sent me off on this other path of auditioning in the and and creating a career that's more much more traditional. You know, like you go to sure. New York and you get an agent and you audition for whatever they send you in for. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about making my own stuff or or physical theater. It was just it was about doing theater and movies and television and commercials and right. industrials and all those things. Right. So physical theater was always kind of there, but sometimes it would recede a little. And it, it really wasn't until recently that it started coming hard back into focus for me. When my kids got older. I was like, OK, I, I, now what am I going to do with myself? I want to refocus on this thing that really sparked uh, great curiosity and excitement in me. So I started re- studying again. Yeah. So speaking of that, um Last semester, you spearheaded the creation of an incredible work of devised theater called Near Far. And this was something that the students really kind of developed as they went along, right? What was the genesis of that and how did it come together? Well, the genesis of that was really a conversation with the whole department of we we want to stay in creation and creativity with our students this time of pandemic and it was important to me as the movement person that we stay the students stay embodied I I think I even said at that meeting to stay in their poetic body it's a beautiful Lecoq phrase that I just love that notion that the body itself is poetic and I like right now we're sitting at our desks looking into our computers at each other and it's so it's I just feel my own body kind of collapsing in on itself in this position. We're here all day long and all these meetings. And I just, I didn't want to do a, a Zoom reading with everybody sitting and looking at the computer. I wanted to see if we could make something. Mm-hmm. And and I thought if we're going to make something, let's talk, let's talk about what it's like to be in pandemic. And I don't know why this... <laughs> this little um, skit from Sesame Street came to mind of Grover running here far, you know, he's sort of teaching little children, toddlers, the meaning of being near and far away. Mm -hmm. And we so I mean, until the pandemic, we really take for granted 
what the nearness is mm-hmm. to one another, right? Being in close physical proximity to people. Mm. I had no, honestly though, Kevin, I had no idea what that was going to be. The minute Michael's, Michael was so supportive, he's like, I really, that's, let's do that. Let's do the Grover thing. And then I told my husband, I said, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> I have no idea what I mean by that. I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be, but it was a big exercise in trust. Yeah. Support and community and conversation. Yeah. Like it all came together because people continued to say yes. Mm-hmm. And nobody ever was like, that sounds dumb. Certainly could have. They could have been like, that really is, I don't get it. And, and so we made this thing, and it was all about the masks and being isolated. Mm-hmm. Catherine, we had this one, re- we had one in-person rehearsal. We met on the stage at the Grove at night. Everybody brought their masks. And before um, I left my house, I went around my property and gathered up all these stones. And we did this exercise where at the end, um, I, I gave as a gift these sort of river stones to each actor. And I felt it to me, and I hope for the cast and and our um, stage management team that it felt ultra communal, like ultra connected because we had been so separated. Mm-hmm. We had never been in the actual same physical space until that day. And to me, it was very special to me. I may or may not have cried a little bit. <laughs> oh. But just to see those young artists in space together making something and so like hungry for that literal physical spatial connection mm-hmm. and and that's what we were exploring in that piece what it means to be separated what it means to be to desire to be near but unable to do so does it mean that we no longer care for one another no it just it, it's a sort of it, feels very Russian to me, like, you know, like, oh, we are separated forever now. Yes, we are. My heart is broken. Goodbye. <laughs> it's, this is not going to be fixed. It's just going to be, but hopefully we're going to be fixed now. I got my shot. And you just sort of offered this idea to all these students and you didn't know them. You're brand new as a professor and they ran with it. Yes. I, I say that they were the braver because they did not know me, right? Like, I, I'm kind of used to walking into these situations. I've been an yeah. actor and a, and a theater person long enough to know this feeling of walking into a room and I don't know anybody and we're going to make something and we're all going to have to get real vulnerable and comfortable with one another. But for young actors, I think, especially in an academic environment, we all know each other. It's like, oh, you and, mm-hmm. and here's this new, new person saying, put these masks on and be personal and yeah but I think I think we 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 took our time we took our time getting there so we workshopped we learned about masks we spent time before we started really digging in so um, I think I think it was for me it was a really grand experiment in trust trusting each other in the process it was a beautiful piece, and a lot of people watched it. And continue to, I think. I can, you know, I'm still talking. It's still being watched. People tuned in without knowing really kind of anything about what it was. And Yeah, I would, I would also say that some people tuned in not knowing what it was and left still not knowing what it was. 
but having but having had an experience that they enjoyed right yes yeah. yes and i guess what i mean by that is that we, we are really used to i think as americans particularly having our story handed us to us in a very complete fashion of this is what it is perhaps you already know this story yeah maybe you've read it or seen it 10 times before here it is again mm-hmm. and it's very linear and there's been beginning, middle and end, and there are characters and there's a hero. And I would say that there is a, a hero. There is, it does end up being a main character in mm-hmm. the bar, um, which was just came out of the rehearsal process. But I would also say that there are big portions of it in which you are asked as an audience member to just be present and yeah. have your own experience. It's not as cut and dry. There's not, there's no dialogue. Um, we're not pantomiming things, a story out, not a pantomime. And there's not a, there's not already a fixed archetypical story that we already know. So, but to me, that was the, that's been the experience of pandemic, right? Of living through a pandemic is I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Some days it feels very lethargic and mm-hmm. curious lost and other times I'm like oh I know I know what's happening now this is familiar I don't know you had another work recently suffrage yeah which you maybe intended to be pronounced differently I don't know <laughs> I I again I kind of like to leave that you could say suffrage you could say suffrage you could... yeah <laughs> it's really just a play on words like it's funny to me that that word rages in the, at the end of suffrage. Um, so I kind of, to me, it's always the visual of it is more important than the, how it's pronounced. It's that the way it looks on the page to me or on a poster or on a marquee someday. Yes. <laughs> still dreaming. I'm still dreaming about that. But yes, yes. Um, that, that project has been uh, a funny little year in the making too, and that I started working on it um, last year. I started writing last winter when I was still in New York, um, and I had a little bitty granty for that for of uh, the first reading of it, which we did. We were supposed to do two on campus at SUNY New Paltz, and. The day we did the first reading was the day they locked it all down. We got the big announcement, right? It was so weird because there we are all in a room together and there's there's snacks. You know, my, my little Grant purchased food and coffee and tea and little delightful nibbles. And we, it just felt so professional and wonderful to me and I had all my actors there and a wonderful dramaturg and my student mentee and a producer. Like we had, it just was a, a room full of, people making art. And then everybody's like, oh my God, campus is closing. Everything's closing down tomorrow. It was so weird. So everything for that, the second reading went bye-bye. I was supposed to read it. There was supposed to be a performance on that campus for, um, you know, the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment and all the stuff that went bye-bye. And yet, and yet, I still kept trying to push it forward. So we had a Zoom reading in... um, the early summer through um, Seattle Public Theater. And then um, most recently, 
the one that you're referencing was uh, in observation of International Commedia dell'Arte Day, sponsored by Faction of Fools and George Washington University. And that, that was the first time anybody, there had been an audience for it. And that was really weird. So. <laughs> it's weird when you, there's an audience, but you don't, you don't know who they are or if they're responding for comedy. So I just love to, I would love to get that piece up in front of an audience and see yeah. if it's got any legs at all. I don't know. It's hard to know in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. What's that piece about? Suffrage, suffrage is, um, it's a revenge, it's a historical revenge fantasy. Mm-hmm. There's some amount of historical stuff in it. Set in 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York, the site of the Women's Convention, the first Women's Convention, and sort of this notion that that is the stepping off point of the uh, woman suffrage movement in the United States. But I didn't really want to write about a historical event because that seemed really mm-hmm. like oh, just made me feel sleepy and sort of agitated think about that. And so I thought, I decided I wanted to write like a zombie apocalypse <laughs> about woman suffrage, but it, it didn't really turn out to be an apocalypse because there's only one zombie, but there is one. And it's just sort of, it's really about less about suffrage and women getting the vote and more about the long arc of civil rights and human rights and 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 kind of the the injustice of that of how long it takes to get anything done and and for for anyone who's in a marginalized group i think everybody is just saying we just want the same opportunity we want the same chance and specifically for women there is a, a social notion that women's anger is, is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. It makes women ugly and women are so taught to be valued by their appearance that to be ugly mm-hmm. is like, that's like the worst thing you could possibly be is to not be beautiful or at the very least pretty or, or cute. You right. know, if you can't be beautiful or pretty, at least you can be cute. But it's so awful that that is, you know, that is the bar of achievement for women. Mm-hmm. And so to be angry, if that is to contort the features into ugliness, what, what happens to our, our righteous indignation at being treated as inferior? So I wanted to give these women characters an opportunity to be really angry and to go too far. Mm-hmm but in a funny way. Oh, it's hilarious. Like it's funny. Like it's supposed to be, it's, sil- what's, it's silly. They say at the beginning, this is a silly, silly show. I think what's silly to me, ultimately what's silly is that anybody should be treated differently than anybody else because of their gender, their gender identity, the color of their skin, their religious affiliation, any, just any of these things. Like, can't we just make room for one another? That's silly that we can't sheesh so that's what the the play is really about sort of the gnawing frustration of how slowly uh human rights movements move along and and what bubbles up 
when you're when you've had enough of waiting around. And social and I in actuality we see that happening all the time when people are like, I I'm tired of waiting. So it's just a little examination of that in high comedy <laughs> Brechtian style. And then what are you teaching for the department and what are you doing next? Do you have any works coming up in the next year or so? Or I do, I do. Um, I have two big projects that I'm working on right now. One is to get suffrage to to some producing. Yeah. Another is in, a new play I want to start working on. I have a couple of student mentees who are going to help me do um, dramaturg dramaturgical research and um, stuff like that on that play. But I don't that one. I don't want to talk about too much because it's new and. Um, I, I want to kind of keep it under wraps until it's a little further along. It's it's in its um, embryonic state, and I want to let it grow in the dark a bit. But but it, yes, I have a couple of things. And then as far as what I'm teaching right now, I'm teaching um, a sort of a pure acting class, realism for stage and screen, which is a great treat for me because I do love scene study and classical acting techniques. So great just to coach those. And then I'm also teaching Commedia dell'arte. Uh, this semester, which is fun. It's just such a great style. It's a great, big, crazy, wild something. And it's all, it's, it's completely in opposition to everything actors are taught up to that point. Like, look at it, look in each other's eyes and <laughs> truthfully. And it's like, no, do not be truthful. Be outrageous. Don't look at each other. Turn out be too big, it, it run, don't walk. It's just, it's complete, it, it's hard. That's what makes it a challenge. What are some of the hallmarks of that that would be different for an acting student? I think the most difficult one is turning out when you're speaking. So if we were doing a scene from like Proof, David Auburn's Proof, mm -hmm. we were playing the sisters, we'd be looking at each other and fighting and uh, you know, uh, but in Commedia, if we're playing sisters, while we're fighting, we would turn out to the audience and we would deliver our lines out. And then when I listen, I could turn back to you. But it's just that turning out is it's so far. It's high style. It is highly stylized. And that I find that to be one of the most difficult shifts for students to make. Uh, hmm. It's wild. I mean, you get this thing drilled into your head if I've got to do this is the way you're supposed to perform. It's like, well, you could also do this. <laughs> it's really hard to get out of your habits. And so I, I find myself reminding them, you know, turn out, turn out, turn out. It's hard. It's hard to remember. So. Is it a different focusing of the attention basically? Yeah. It's about focusing on the audience. Like you are directly acknowledging that the audience is out there. You look at them, it's, you know, it's a, it's a very communal kind of theater. There, there, there is and isn't a fourth, I mean, there's not a fourth wall. We acknowledge that the audience is out there. We give, there are asides. Um, we're ever sort of preening and showing ourselves off to the audience. It's, I think the best way to imagine it is if everyone out there is enjoying a, an adult beverage and that maybe you are too, <laughs> you know, it's just like a party. It's a very, and it's 
form of theater was often performed at festivals and, you know, a part of festivals. So, um, carnival. Mm -hmm. We, we have to remember that sort of festive atmosphere that we're a part of that. And Mm -hmm. uh, people aren't contained in a theater and hushed. They're loud. They're drinking, they're talking, they're shouting, laughing, you know, it's very loud and fun. It's much more outrageous. So, yeah. Okay. So this is not related to theater or anything you're doing for the department, but I have to mention that you also have a farm and you moved here, not just with your human family, but a bunch of animals. What's all that like? Just the trip from New York (laughs) to Mississippi with, you know, like 15 goats and Mm -hmm. I don't even know all the, like 40 something poultry Wow. And, and three cats and a dog and two children. Sure. <laughs> um, a couple of plants. But yeah, I mean, that was nuts. That was crazy. But we, we had a farm in New York. Um, and goats in particular, my, my spouse really cultivated and carefully curated this herd of goats. And they're like dogs in some ways in that they have personalities and we care for them. No, they, they are livestock, but we care for them. And there was no way to leave them behind or sell them. That was just not an option. So we brought them and all of our poultry and um, wow. just kind of setting up our farm. My, my husband wants to have a, a community-supported agriculture, a CSA. There are several already in the area, um, but we're just interested in, in providing more options for locally grown foods and community interaction with how how food comes to be. You know, we really are very separated from our food and how it gets to our, our table. So many people don't know how potatoes grow. You know, they just don't. Or, or the time and labor it takes. Mm-hmm. And, and the weather is just gonna be what it's gonna be. It's, it's a miracle really that we have food at all, <laughs> really, because it is such, it's a, it's a little bit of a, you never know what's going to happen with the weather, too much, too much rain, not enough rain, a storm, it's big snow like that and ice can ruin things. It's just, you don't know. So, um, but it, it, it's been important to both of us that our children know where their food comes from. And it's a great way to raise kids too, to have that kind of responsibility of caring for animals, what it means to be responsible to an animal mm-hmm. is, is a big deal. And there, I, I, I think it's been a good experience for them to understand responsibility and food and gratitude or responsibility and gratitude for yeah, that's what we're doing. We got pigs, we got cows now. Yeah, have you um have you expanded your menagerie? We arrived, yes, with the goats and um, turkeys and chickens and one duck. Um, some of the poultry went away because of a raccoon family that snacked the poor duck. It's very sad. Um, and some of our chickens went bye bye as well, and that was hard. 
But um, yes, we now have pigs as well. We have five pigs and we have a bunch of baby goats now hopping around and we have two cows. Um, yeah, so we've definitely expanded. We bought one more male goat to sire to add some new southern blood to our to our herd. <laughs> yeah, so we, we have expanded. We've got uh, our uh, orchard, our fruit orchard has started. So that's cool. And we've been working on our greenhouse, getting it up. So it's going to be, you know, a while for us to get going, but just trying to do all the setting up steps in the proper order. Yeah. How many acres are you on? 20 acres. Wow. We would have loved more, but you know, money. That feels like a lot. Uh, I mean, it does, it, it is and it isn't, depending on what you want to do. Yeah. Uh, but this, you know, weirdly, when we told people we were moving to Oxford, Mississippi, they're like, oh, land and property must be so cheap. And it's like, well, in this area, it's actually pretty expensive because a lot of people have their second homes. Right. Oxford, right? And it's just the, the draw of the university and the culture here. So, mm-hmm. oh, stupid. but we, we found a really lovely place, a great deal. And um, we like where we are and beautiful sunsets. Not a lot of uh, not a lot of light pollution where we live. See all the stars. Mm-hmm. Lovely, lovely spot. Nice. Yeah. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Catherine. All yeah, right. Again, that was Lauren Bone Noble, assistant professor of movement for the actor. Um, we talked about quite a few things in this episode, and if you go to our show notes, you will find links to many of them. You can see some of her other work. Um, there's a link to Near Far, the production that she did with our department and our students last semester. You can watch that online. There's also a link to her farm if you want to stay updated on when you can get some produce and other things from her. Bunch of good stuff in there. So again, thanks for listening. And until next time, this is Stage and Screen.